Thank you for joining us today. This is Expository Insights with Pastor Lyle Wall. Today we will think about confrontation and controversy as we examine Jesus healing a man and the aftermath of that miracle from the first 18 verses in chapter 5 of John's Gospel. Confrontation and controversy do not exactly flood our hearts and minds with peace. In fact, lack of confrontation and controversy is often seen as a good thing. Many people consider a tribute that he was a man who always avoided confrontation and controversy as very positive. Then there is a constant deluge of complaints about the polarization of our society with intense confrontation and controversies. And there is the common complaint that the media focuses on confrontation and controversy for market share, which contributes to the lack of peace and harmony. But, we are also told, part of being a disciple of Jesus involves confrontation and controversy. So, both views have some truth. While we don't like confrontation and controversy, Christians are called to choose issues carefully and move forward with the correct motives to state the truth positively, as well as confront sin, falsehood, and evil. That will be controversial. But the Bible is clear that we are not to go around looking for arguments. We are not to be argumentative people. Proverbs chapter 26 paints a clear picture of the damage being like this can do. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious person to kindle strife. God instructs us in Philippians chapter 2, Do all things without complaining or arguments. And Romans chapter 12 teaches us, If possible, So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. As we enter the fifth chapter of John today, we enter a new section where the theme is confrontation and controversy. This section extends through chapter 12. The chapter opens with Jesus healing a man. Today we are going to walk through the account and then step back and look at some important lessons from it. As we survey this miracle, we find it presented in four scenes. In the first scene, Jesus heals the man. The timing was at a feast, or festival, although John does not tell us which one. More important than knowing which feast or festival is to know that what happened here took place on a Sabbath day. John underlines that importance by mentioning it in verse 9, just before the controversy begins. The place was Jerusalem, at the pool of Bethsaida. Bethsaida means house of mercy. The situation involved a man lying by the pool who had been suffering from a lameness or paralysis for 38 years. Other sick people were there as well. All of them were hoping to be miraculously healed. Depending on the Bible version you are reading, 
you may notice that the last part of verse 3 and verse 4 is either in brackets or not included in the text but in a footnote. This is not editors cutting out part of Scripture. The phrase is not in the oldest and best manuscripts we now have. Most scholars consider the last part of verse 3 and verse 4 as a very old addition to the text to help explain the paralyzed man's comment about the water being stirred situation in the text, which certainly appears to reflect a widely held belief in that day from the people gathered there. Let's look at the entire statement, including what is now in the footnote. Verse 3. In these porticos lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, limping, or paralyzed. Now the footnoted text. Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first stepped in after the stirring up of the water was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Again, modern editors are not cutting out part of Scripture, but trying to establish what is Scripture. There is no scriptural evidence either casting doubt on God healing people in the way described here, or for establishing it. Going back to the interaction of Jesus with this man, Jesus took the initiative. He approached the man and, verse 7, asked him, Do you want to get well? Verse 13 makes it clear that the man did not know who Jesus was, and so he had no idea that the one asking him this question could heal him. In fact, it is possible, perhaps probable, that he thought this was a stupid question. Why else do you think I'm laying here at this pool? Everyone knows why. But the man answered respectfully, explaining his situation. Look at verse 7. Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus speaks again, this time not with a question, but with a concise, crisp, three-part command. Verse 8, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. How did he respond? John tells us, immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Jesus healed him. Scene 2 centers on the religious leader's response to Jesus healing this man. Some of the leaders spotted the man as he walked with his pallet or bedroll. They said to him, verse 10, It is a Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. What's going on here? All the Jewish people, including this man, knew that they were not to work on the Sabbath, the seventh day. They knew, had memorized the Ten Commandments, including, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, or your son, or your daughter, your male slave, or your female slave, 
or your cattle, or your resident who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. For that reason the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Of course, people had questions. What does this mean? What can I do and not do to keep it, to keep from breaking it? And so leaders drew up lists of what they thought people could and could not do to keep the Sabbath day. One list gave the regulation that you cannot take one thing from one dwelling to another, which included no moving of furniture or other household goods on the Sabbath. It was then amplified to include not carrying anyone on a bed if they were ill and unable to walk, as well as not carrying a bed or bedroll. As well, it went farther. One regulation or tradition applied to this states it is work to move something from a private place to a public place, or carry an object in a public place. Not allowed. Some Jewish people today still take this very seriously. One Jewish writer explains the meaning for today as he sees it. Examples of this prohibition include carrying something in your pocket that you brought from home, carrying anything in the hand, wheeling a baby carriage or shopping cart, going outside with gum or food in the mouth, carrying in public hallways or yards of multiple dwellings unless an arrangement is made. The area in which one wishes to carry must be enclosed. This enclosure can occur naturally or be man-made. You can take a long rope and put it around an area and it would then be enclosed and must be constructed before the Sabbath. Should I go on? Without doubt, this was and is a detailed, complicated process filled with regulations and loopholes. The man's response is in verse 11. He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. I'm sure he was both surprised and afraid. After all, these leaders held absolute power over his religious, community, and even family relationships. They could excommunicate him from the synagogue and make him an outcast from his community and family. So he gave a quick and natural response. It's not my fault. I'm not out to break the Sabbath. I'm only doing what the man who healed me told me to do. This brought up a new issue in the leaders' minds. Who would do work? Who would dare to heal on the Sabbath? Who is he? And by what authority is he doing this? We move on to scene three, where Jesus instructs the man. Verse 14 tells us this took place later. It could be later on that same day, or the next day, or a few days later. Jesus again took the initiative. He found the man 
and either identified himself or someone else told the healed man this was Jesus. Jesus gave him some instruction. Look at verse 14. Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. You may have questions about this. Let them simmer for a few minutes, and then we will look at them. Now let's move on to scene four, in which the religious leaders intensify their persecution of Jesus. The man left Jesus and went to the leaders and told them who it was that healed him. Again, this was an understandable action. He didn't want the leaders upset with him. Now that he was healed, he would have some form of acceptability, and the last thing he wanted was to be excommunicated. Yes, it appears he continues to try to make sure he isn't blamed for doing anything wrong, and, again, we can understand why he did this. John is very blunt in describing the intensity of the persecution, although he doesn't give us details. Breaking the Sabbath was a serious offense. When the religious leaders confronted Jesus, he gave them a totally unexpected, mind-blowing answer. Drop down to verse 17. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. We may not immediately see the depths of what Jesus meant, and knowing what we do about him, they may not surprise us, let alone shock us. But it did strike those religious leaders with both surprise and shock. They correctly understood Jesus claimed equality with God to be God. To them, this was blasphemy. Go on to verse 18, where John explains. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Having surveyed the miracle, let's now survey some lessons that God gives us here. The first lesson is the foundational truth that God extends his grace according to his purposes and plans. Let's begin with this man Jesus healed. Jesus took the initiative. The man did not ask to be healed. Back in chapter 4, the royal official had faith and asked Jesus to heal his son, and his faith continued to grow until he became a believer. Not so here. This man did not even know who Jesus was when he was healed, let alone have faith in him. This demonstrates the truth that God extends grace according to his plans and purposes. This can leave us with questions. How can that be right? How can that be fair? How does it work? And then, what about Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 21, verse 22? Whatever you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive it. Just a few broad-stroke answers here today. 
we start with the truth that Scripture interprets Scripture. We need the full teaching of the Bible to correctly understand a particular statement. For example, to understand Matthew chapter 21, verse 22, we need 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. Note that our request must not only be in faith, but also according to God's will. Total faith alone will not lead to God granting our requests. We need Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 as well, which tells us that God works all things in accordance with the plan of His will. Then Paul deals with the fairness-justice issue in Romans chapter 9, citing Exodus chapter 33 verse 19, where God told Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. And so, Paul wrote in Romans, that it does not depend on our merit, but on God, who has mercy. After all, none of us deserves God's mercy. That is basic to what mercy is. God is sovereign. He does what He pleases. Never doubt the fact that God loves you deeply, more than anyone else does or can. He cares deeply for every need, struggle, problem, and desire you have. Never forget, He is sovereign God, and His plans for you are good, that He does work all things after the counsel of His own will, that His purpose is, as Paul refers to it, in Romans chapter 9, to demonstrate His power, proclaim His name, that is, to bring glory to Himself. The first lesson, then, is that God extends His grace according to His purposes and plans. A second lesson is that religious tradition can both bind and blind. At the start, Recognize that all of us have tradition. We have regular ways of doing and not doing things. Many traditions in themselves are neither good or bad, and sometimes we even forget why we do them. A young woman was home from university for a family celebration and was helping her mother prepare the big meal. As her mom was getting the roast ready for the oven, she cut off a bit from one end before putting it into the pan. Her daughter asked, Why did you do that? Her mom said, I always do this. Your grandmother always has done this. I'm not sure why. Later, when her grandmother arrived, she asked her. She told her, Oh, years ago, I only had a small pan, and so I usually had to cut off a bit of the roast to make it fit. I guess it just became a habit. Tradition Here in John chapter 5, the religious leaders were inspectors, 
ensuring that everyone followed their traditions about keeping the Sabbath. They were upset with the man carrying his mat because they judged that it was work. They were upset with Jesus for healing the man on the Sabbath because they judged it was work. All based on their traditions of interpreting God's command. Think about the effect of their tradition on these leaders themselves. Here was a miracle of God before them. A man who had been unable to walk for 38 years now was walking. We would expect they would be thrilled and thankful that God was working. We would expect to hear these spiritual leaders shouting, Amen! Hallelujah! Praise God! We would expect that they would wonder if Messiah might be among them. But no. Their traditions bound and blinded them. You see, they elevated their traditions to the level of law, of God's commands of right and wrong. When this healing did not fit in their nice, rigid boxes, it had to be wrong. So there was no praise and thankfulness. There was not even any consideration that they might be in the presence of the Messiah. All of us have traditions. Some are older, others newer. And yes, some relate to Sunday, our appointed day of rest and worship, and how we worship. And they also extend across every plane of life, to how we think of and relate to people who are different than ourselves, how we both use and guard our time, abilities, and resources. The lists go on and on, can be endless. Even our best traditions can bind and blind us. A third lesson is that sin leads to God's judgment. Sometime after Jesus healed the man, he found him in the temple and told him, verse 14 again, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. First, please note that Jesus does not specifically say this man's physical problems were because of some past sin on his part. We know that many people in the first century thought physical problems usually, almost always, came because of specific personal sins. Sometimes God does judge or discipline sin with illness and even death. This is true for those who do not believe in God. Acts chapter 12 records God striking Herod Agrippa I with worms, and he died because of his sin. His sin of accepting the praise of the crowds that he was speaking with the voice of a God and not of a man, and not giving glory to God. For believers, there is an example of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. When they sinned by claiming a gift they brought for God's work was more than they actually brought, God made a dramatic and emphatic point by striking both of them dead on the spot. Then there is the Apostle Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about taking communion without care. 
he wrote, For the one who eats and drinks, that is, takes part in communion, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not properly recognize the body. For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number are asleep, that is, have died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Yes, Christ's death atones for all our sin. It is finished. But God does discipline us for our sins, as we've just seen. But most sickness comes because we live in a fallen, sinful world, not because of specific personal sin. Later here in John's Gospel, Jesus said that a man he healed was not born blind because of personal sin, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So what is Jesus saying here? What is his point to this man? We cannot be entirely certain. The language Jesus uses here might point to this man's illness being the result of some sin of his. But Jesus' warning, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you, could also point beyond the physical to the spiritual. As important as physical life is, Jesus is more concerned about something else. Spiritual life. Remember his sharp contrasts with both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman at the well. He came to redeem sinners, to call them to repent or turn from sin and to follow God. As happy as this man was that he could stand and walk, move around, be accepted, and earn his livelihood, there was something far more important. His relationship to God. Immeasurably worse than 38 years of being sick and dependent was for this man to spend eternity separated from God and enduring the just punishment of his sin. For believers, the message is to be doers as well as hearers of the word of God, to be faithful and bring glory to God. An old Irish proverb says, all sin casts long shadows. It can be hard to live with the scars of forgiven sin. One last lesson is that godly living will result in persecution. We know Jesus was persecuted. Here in chapter 5, there are two brief statements in verses 16 and 18. Verse 16, For this reason the Jews, that is, the Jewish religious leaders, were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on a Sabbath. Verse 18, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Back in the first chapter we read, He came to his own, and his own people did not accept him. 
what we see here in chapter 5, will culminate in his crucifixion in chapter 19. Why is it that Jesus had to suffer so much persecution? Because Jesus is the light, and sinful people not truly seeking the light of God reject it and him. Because Jesus did not compromise, but presented the truth clearly. He confronted people squarely with the truth. Why did he perform this miracle on a Sabbath day? In part, to confront the blind, burdensome traditions which obscured the purpose and function of that day, and also to confront those leaders who laid those unbearable burdens on the people. Jesus experienced persecution because he, God the Son, lived the full spectrum of godliness before sinful people, engaging them as well as Satan and his forces. For us, godly living will result in persecution. Turn ahead to chapter 15, beginning at verse 18, where Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. If they followed my word, they will follow yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know the one who sent me. The Apostle Paul put it briefly and bluntly. Indeed, all who want to live in a godly way in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The type and extent of persecution is not the point. The point is to live the truth of God, shine His light brightly, and that will bring rejection and persecution as well as acceptance and fellowship. Persecution, by definition, is not on the top ten list of most pleasurable experiences. So it can be easy to duck situations where we think people may misunderstand us or ridicule us. It can be easy to fly below the radar rather than letting God's light shine brightly through us and trust Him to care for us. This is the record and truth that flows from the beginning of increased confrontation and controversy around Jesus. It is much more than an important lesson on the events in the life of Jesus. God is speaking to us about how we are to live and what, in part, that means. The question to us from the late Francis Schaeffer is, how should we then live? Confrontation and controversy is part of being a disciple of Jesus. He is our Savior, Lord, and our example. Is he truly your example in being a light shining brightly today, each day? Is your light shining brightly? Remember, as Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, 
run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Thank God that Jesus was willing to suffer for your benefit. Examine what you think and do about confrontation and controversy. Look for times and situations in which you may dim the light or duck taking a stand because it is uncomfortable. Ask God to help you be a bright light shining for the glory of Jesus, your Savior. Let's bow in prayer. God, our Almighty and Gracious Father, thank you for your great grace to us. Thank you that Jesus willingly suffered for us, for our well-being. Thank you that we are privileged to be his people. Help us to always remember that just as Jesus experienced confrontation and controversy, rejection and persecution, so will we as we are his faithful followers. Forgive us for times when we did not let our light shine brightly, when our voices had been muted because we feared discomfort and rejection. Help us to be bright lights and clear voices for you, knowing that you always are with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.